Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored to be in dialogue with my guest, Dr. Helene Johara Pinier of the University of Tours, who will be discussing with us her new book, Sephardi, Cooking the History, Recipes of the Jews of Spain and the Diaspora from the 13th century to today. Helene, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to you. Thank you to you, Harry, and thank you to New Books Series for inviting me to participate in this podcast on Israel's Today's. Thank you. I'm delighted. Um, you have so much wisdom and the efforts and erudition that went into this project is, is absolutely humbling. And I say this not only as the person introvert viewing you, but I say this as somebody who has read through this cookbook and is just blown away by the detail and meticulousness that went into it. Um, You've done a tremendous act of generosity, not only to readers in the academic world, but to people in the Jewish community who would benefit from knowing the history of the foods that is so easily forgotten. So thank you for all the difficulty that went into producing this book. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, that's right. That it's a lot, a lot of work. Uh, it has been, and it's still uh, a very hard work. But um, I'm very, I'm very happy to do that because I am always uh, interesting in sharing uh, knowledge and the recognition of um, the Jewish studies and the Jewish food in Jewish studies and in the history in general. As we begin the interview, I'd like to ask you if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, what can we benefit from knowing about you? Oh, um, I can I can speak a little about um, my family and my background. Um, maybe I, I'm for, I'm 41. I'm almost 41, and uh, I come from a very classic family. You know, my mother is French and um, has brought brought up in a Catholic family. However, um, genealogical research uh, in the archives showed that we had ancestors in Eastern Europe, in Alsace and Germany, who were Jews, and uh, this is very interesting. 
Um, but in the second world war, uh, we they left, in fact, and um, their practices they, they left the country and the practices were lost. Um, concerning, I mean, concerning my uh, culinary background, <laughs> uh, on my on my mother's side, uh, there are cooks. We can you can you can you can find cooks. You can uh, find pastry chef. You can find bakers. You can find caterers. So we all like food, in fact, and we all prepare food. So that's very, that's very, that is very cool. Um, on my father's side, on my father's side, it's quite um, different um, because um, I have not uh, family members um, that uh, are um, professional cooks. You mean? So I, I want to say so. Uh, in fact, um, my on my on my father's side, we are all Spanish and from the south of Spain in Andalusia. My grandparents fled the dictatorship and settled in France for a few years, few years before moving back to Spain in uh, nineteen seventy-five. From my grandmother's side, uh, it seems that the family has never left Andalusia. Her last name, for example, is Palma Torres and appeared in um, records of the Inquisitions and in particular uh, in the records of, in the trials of the Inquisition from the Canaria Islands. But she always refused uh, to talk about it. Um, I, can, I, can, I can talk about maybe uh, concerning um, the Jewish community who has been living in the city where we live nowadays in Spain. Uh, I mean, La Nida de la Concepcion. This is a very, it's not a small city, but uh, it's, it is um, um, an interesting city because as it is just um, in front of the um, Gibraltar, in the Strait of Gibraltar, in front of the Rock of Gibraltar, uh, it is very uh, disturbing because um, the Jewish community of La Nida de la Concepcion and the Jewish community of Gibraltar has been in relation, so that that that's very interesting to mention. Concerning my father's side, um, they are of course uh, all Spanish, as I told you. But uh, my family have been traveling. Uh, their name is Pinier, and is also mentioned in Inquisition trials from Mexico and Brazil under the name of Pinero, Pinero. Um, but um, it's very hard to make um, generical research because uh, almost everything, everyone passed away. So my grandmother is an excellent cook and she is the one who transmitted the love and the passion for cooking. Thank you for sharing all of this. Um, <laughs> it's amazing how rich your family's heritage is and it reflects in the erudition that you bring to cooking and to the preparation of this remarkable book. <laughs> Thank you. How, how did you become interested in the culinary history of Sephardic Jews? Um, in fact, this, uh, this, um, this story started, in fact, when I was 10 years old. Um, I remember that uh, the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston was on television. And my father told me, uh, Helene, 
you should watch this film. It's very important. Well, I did not. In fact, in the first time, I didn't realize that how important was this sentence for my father. And um, so I have been watching uh, the, this movie um, for three hours, and I was so captivated by the story. And I was just, I was only 10, year, 10 years old, but I remember that, but I remember that um, something special was happening. And um, this was the start of a long and slow journey um, back to the origins, back to Judaism, and back to the history of the Jews. And then I decided to go deeper, uh, in fact, in this, uh, in my decision, in fact. And when I went to the university very close to Paris, and then I went to the Sorbonne, I decided to specialize my career in his, the history of Spain. Of Spain, And I was, it was the, the history in, of Spain, the Spanish uh, history is very, um, is really in relation with uh, religion and culture and food. And that's why when I was 22, I began my studies and concerning, I decided to go deeper in uh, these three areas. I mean, I was so fascinated by food, religion, and Spain. And that's why, that's why um, when I started my PhD, I chose to develop uh, these areas by uh, specializing in the history of the food of uh, the Jews of Spain and the Sephardic Jews since the, the end of the Middle Ages. And now here I am. <laughs> wow, what an honor. Thank you. Uh, such a light in this world you are. Thank you. Um, how did you come to choose the topic of Sephardic culinary history for your doctoral research? And can you introduce us to what your doctoral thesis is about and maybe share some of the obstacles and challenges that you experienced in conducting dissertation research on this topic? Yes, uh, that's um, a very interesting point is that uh, you are mentioning because uh, I like the I like the words obstacles and challenges because of course, <laughs> as many scholars when you start a PhD it's, you have to 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 literally you, you have to fight <laughs> because it's very very complex. Um, in fact, um, I started m my PhD concern um, multiculturalism. So I decided, in fact, to talk about uh, food, the food of the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims at the end of the Middle Ages, since, in fact, the 13th century. Why? Because, in fact, uh, it was um, very important for me to understand um, why... Um, why Spain is um, to understand the the, the the culinary heritage of Spain nowadays, and you cannot understand the her the culinary heritage of Spain of nowadays without uh, go without understanding uh, the the history of Spain and what is Spain. Spain is multiculturalism. So if one say, oh, I'm only Catholics and my family has Holland Catholics, okay, this is this is not like that. So because uh, Muslims have been um, in Spain during uh, eight centuries, and even if, of course, at the end, 
of the 15th centuries and during two centuries um, the very important part of the of Spain was under Catholic rule. Um, we cannot. Um, we have to mention that during um, eight centuries, um, there was a very important uh, Muslim um, domination. So uh, that I was so intriguing because I said, okay, um, the act of eating is um, something very important because we eat every day. So we do not eat once a day we eat two times or three times so of course my question was muslims jews and christians uh, where the question the question was where muslims jews and christians uh, eating the same thing so i decided to start uh, that and to start my 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 phd and the, my goal was to find, in fact, the first Jewish cookbook from Spain. Honestly, I have been looking for almost one year, uh, <laughs> but I didn't find anything, of course, because there is no uh, Jewish cookbook from Spain in the late in in the Middle Ages. So I decided to to find a way to 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 find information concerning the the practices of the, the Jews that were living in Spain. And that's why uh, I, uh, I decided to start um, to go deeper in the analysis of the first cookbook written in uh, Arabic, of course, which is the only one that mentioned Jew- explicitly Jewish recipes. So that, that's why I did during, uh, during six years of PhD, and um, of course, obstacles and challenges. I had to. I had, of course, it was so complex because um, I had to find all the sources, very different sources that mentioned the foods that the Jews ate. It was the most difficult because um, as uh, this cookbook does not exist. I had to look into in literary uh, and judicial and medical and culinary sources in different languages like Spanish, Arabic, Catalan, Portuguese, Hebrew, and Occitan. So many languages married many different historical sources. So of course it was a, a very great challenge, you know. <laughs> and at least um, to this difficulty, um, I had to should be added in fact the fact that certain sources um, it was like a, a crisscrossing because um, a very interesting information was mentioned in I don't know I mean in a poem from the 14th century and the same culinary information was found in an Inquisition trial from the same century so this crisscrossing was very hard for me to manage because after that, I have to write what was the story of this dish or of this consumption. So this has been very hard for me. And for, of course, to present all the ideas and rewrite them, it was very difficult. Another difficulty was uh, to note that certain dishes had a different name according to the sources, even though they were the same dish. And finally, um, the last difficulty is that the cuisine of the Jews has uh, it's 
we, we, can, we can see an evolution, in fact, of the cuisine of the Jews according to history and not according to their tastes. To their tastes. So that was very, that was very hard for me. Uh, and you always have to ask to yourself why, why, why is this dish bear these names and why this same dish bears another name but in fact it is the same dish so yes a lot of challenges wow um so much spine and inner strength had to go into these processes um i'm amazed that you got through it and that you found a pathway through all these challenges and obstacles um it shows how much personal character went into the book and goes into this research and is just worthy of so much respect and so much praise and honor. Um, and we often don't appreciate it when we read books and take it for granted that the knowledge is just there, but the, the sacrifice that you go through and that you in particular went through so that anonymous strangers would be able to have this knowledge of Jewish culinary history in the Sephardi world is that it just shows the heroism in, in a very real way that you would sacrifice so much for the benefit of knowledge for everybody else. It was hard, but I'm very, I'm very glad and to, to, I'm very glad, in fact, and because that's right, it was so hard, it was so complex, and sometimes it makes me crazy. But, um, but in fact, I'm very proud because uh, I really would like to, to, to contribute to the recognition of the, of the Sephardic heritage and the Sephardic culinary heritage. So, so even if it was very hard, I'm very, I'm very happy. <laughs> Thank you. A, a debt of gratitude goes out to you um, for doing all this for all of us. I was fascinated by um, the substitution of ingredients that many conversos instituted in traditional Jewish dishes. For example, one of the recipes that you transcribe from, from the Inquisition, from Inquisition trials, is that of a man named Gaspar Valdez. And you said that he consumed hot chocolate as a substitute for wine on, in the Kiddush of Shabbat. What's the origin of this substitution? Likewise, likewise you have um, elsewhere, you describe corn to tortillas as a substitute for matzah on Passover. Um, can you go into more detail about some of these substitutions that existed among conversos? Ah, in fact, it's really like you like what you mentioned. Uh, this is the, the case of uh, Gaspar Valdez and many other cases like this one. This is the evidence of the necessity for of um, a perpetual adaptation of the Jews. The Jews always have to adapt their practices, uh, whatever they were. I mean, uh, if they were uh, um, in Spain or if they were in the, the other side of the Atlantic, they 
always have to adapt their consumption, they adapt their food, to adapt their practices because um, the people that were living around them were not mainly Jewish. And in, in a period of inquisition, because we all know that the inquisition is, was not only in Spain, of course, there were inquisition in Mexico, inquisition in Peru, inquisition in other countries uh, under the, the, the rules of the Catholics, okay, the kings. So, of course, mainly were uh, Catholics. So when you live in a country, uh, in a territory, and where not everyone is Jewish and you have very special practices that are not Catholic practices, you have to find a way to keep uh, safe <laughs> and to keep, al- to keep alive. <laughs> you have to find a way uh, to continue your practices um, and uh, hiding, in fact, the, the, the practices. So this is the case you mentioned of Gaspar Valdez is very the evidence of this necessity, this, the necessity of adaptation of the Jews. Um, this proved this prove that uh, a dietary adaptation in relation to kashrut is a very, has a very important part, takes a very important pl- place in the life of the Jews of the Converso. And these substitutions were, were widespread. Um, of course, you mentioned the corn. Okay, but the corn was not the only substitution that the Converso used to, um, to, to continue their practices. This, this case proved that um, the Conversos really wanted to, to, to keep uh, their, their food uh, kosher and to respect the cash root because if it was not the case, they would have eaten uh, wheat for, for, for Passover. And it, this trial proved uh, the opposite. Okay, this trial, this inquisition trial, trial um, proved that um, the conversos wanted to continue uh, to respect the cash root and to respect their practices. So they decided to adapt their consumption um, in relation with the kind of food that was um, allowed concerning the cash root. So um, they used corn, but they also could use uh, chestnut flour instead of corn to make the tortilla. Corn was not the, the only substitute. They could find other substitute to continue uh, their practices. And um, it was mainly the case in Spain. In Spain, we can find um, evidences that, for example, eggplants have been uh, used uh, to um, make it look like meat. It was not meat, but it it looks like meat. So they used also eggplants and it was a way to hide their practices. And the Catholics, the Catholics um, thought that it was meek and maybe it could have been pork, but in fact, it was just infant. So substitutions, innovations, substitutions to keep uh, alive was just a common thing for the Converso. <laughs> Fascinating. 
your cookbook features many recipes, at least 10, from the medieval Arabic cookbook, Kitab al-Tabih. Can you describe the significance of this cookbook for us? And can you share any insights as to the origins and history of this cookbook? Oh, yes. In fact, the Kitab al-Tabih, that means, in fact, Kitab uh, in Arabic means uh, the book. And al-Tabih or Tabh uh, is the name, it's the Arabic name for the cuisine. So, in fact, Kitab al-Tabih means, in Arabic, it's the cookbook. So, um, this, in fact, this cookbook has been my main source during uh, the first years of my PhD. Uh, it's a cookbook written uh, in the 13th century in Andalusia, but uh, we do not know anything about the author, the author of the, the Kitab al-Tabih. Uh, that is very interesting that not to have, in fact, the origin of the author. And um, so it is written in Arabic and it has almost 462 uh, recipes of dishes. So it's quite, um, it's it's a a big cookbook, okay? And uh, I have been um, uh, reading this cookbook and uh, making a deep analysis of the recipes. And why is this cookbook so important for um, for the history? The first, the first reason could be that uh, this is the first one, in fact. And in the Iberian Peninsula, you only have two cookbooks, and they are written in Arabic. That dates back to uh, the to the late Middle Ages, the 13th century, and you have another one. Which is written in Catalan, but in Catalan, uh, that's mean. But it has been written uh, in Catalan, so in the northern east of Spain. But it was under Christian rules because we know that um, Catalonia was in, in the northern east Spain uh, was under Christians' rules since the um, eight uh, centuries. So what is why the Kitab al-Tabih is so important? Because it is the only one to mention explicitly Jewish recipes. That means that in the title of the recipe, it is written the title as all the book is written in Arabic. But the title of six recipes okay, mention the term Jewish or Jew in the title of the recipe. And this is unique, in fact. So I decided to start uh, my analysis concerning these six Jewish recipes. And then, um, of course, after three years only working on this source, I also discovered, because I was, in fact, I was looking for evidences of culinary of Jewish culinary practices. And as we know, the holidays in Judaism um, played a very important role. So I decided to keep in mind uh, the practices we have uh, when it's time to celebrate um, Passover, or it's time to celebrate um, Shavuot, or it's time to celebrate other, or Shabbat, of course. course. 
So I decided to focus on this very special culinary practice we have and to look into the 462 recipes um, to see if I can find any evidence of this, um, these practices. And of course, we have, of course, six explicitly Jewish recipes, but um, the books highlight the existence of other Jewish recipes, but the term Jews or Jewish is not mentioned in the recipe. Nevertheless, we know, we know that uh, this is a re- this was a recipe um, that was um, prepared by the Jews uh, or other Jews. So that is very interesting. And uh, two other recipes are mentioned in um, Eastern cookbook written also in Arabic. And but it's not in the Iberian Peninsula. So it is in Egypt, but it's quite different. But this is very, this cookbook is also, this Eastern cookbook is also very particular and unique because it is the only one to mention uh, an explicitly um, Jewish recipes that dates back to the same century as, uh, quite the same century as the the Jewish recipes of the Kitab al-Tabir. So, yes. I, uh, that that is a very important part in my cookbook, the the, the Jewish uh, recipes from the Arabic cookbook, and I hope people will like them too. <laughs> Thank you. It, it's it's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Contemporary Israeli cuisine and Israeli cookbooks have integrated many quote-unquote Mizrahi dishes into mainstream popularity. How do you explain why some quote-unquote Mizrahi dishes have become part of the popular Israeli mainstream while other Sephardi dishes have not? For example, we do not commonly associate candied eggplant Batbot, Isfenj, Almoronia, and other recipes that appear in your book with Israeli cuisine or Israeli Mizrahi cuisine, even though communities in Israel probably so consume them. Yeah. How do you explain this? Okay, you're totally right. Um, mainly Sephardi dishes presented in my cookbook have not necessarily become uh, Israelified. <laughs> uh, I think uh, this is not an amnesia. This is not something we forgot. It's just that no one before my work was um, uh, that took time or dedicated time to researching in historical sources to find the culinary past, the culinary heritage of the, of the Sephardic Jews. Through um, very different and totally different sources, I think that um, there is no. I think this is this is this is for me that uh, how we can explain this situation. Um, this is just because no one, no scholar, um, ha- took time, dedicated time to research in historical sources to find the. The, the heritage of uh, the, the Jews from Spain and other countries like Morocco and the other one and other countries. Because why? Because in fact, to do that, you have to find the source. 
it's very easy and I'm going to, I, I think we are going to, to talk about that after maybe but I think it's very easy and this is a very a very this is a like a problem when you talk about uh, Jewish cuisine it's because uh, a lot of people say okay I know that uh, I'm sure that this uh, dish belongs to na 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 or the origin of the origin of this dish is but, but in fact nobody knows exactly and that's why this took me five years of my PhD. Just looking um, and go deeper and deeper and deeper to very different sources, like I told you, like uh, literature, uh, like uh, medical treaties, like agri- um, uh, in um, treaties of agriculture, culinary uh, treaties. So this is a huge work. And this took me five years of my life, and I am very happy to to to, to yes to do that to have been done that. So maybe many Sephardic dishes not became Israeli or Israel Israeli size because nobody knew about them and their Jewish background. I think that if some Israeli dishes have become part of the Israeli mainstream, while those ones have not. This could be because of the geography. I mean, um, this is because of the geography. I mean, the agriculture of the vegetables that grew up depending on the climate and the climate and that. And um, the other reason could be uh, a geopolitical reason. Uh, I mean that the proximity to um, culinary culture of the Arab countries that surrounded Israel. So um, here we have a lot of different reasons why some of the Sephardi dishes have not been uh, Israelified, you know, or became Israeli. Uh, when I mean Sephardi dishes, I, of course, here I am talking about um, Israeli. Um, when I'm talking about Sephardi dishes, I'm talking about Sephardi dishes mainly from Morocco and mainly from Spain. Okay, so this is just because uh, nobody uh, knew about them. But uh, there is a a change nowadays uh, in uh, Israel because um, I received uh, um, emails from people living in Israel and I saw different articles in um, different um, journals that are talking about um, the Sephardic cuisine and some dishes that belongs to, um, the, for example, the Moroccan communities in Israel. And um, I think that if we do not commonly associate, for example, Almoronia or Isfenge and other dishes with Israeli cuisine, even through communities within Israel, probably still consume them, this could be because there is a real lack of uh, knowledge and recognition of Sephardic cuisine. But uh, to be able to know this cuisine, uh, so um, that is then recognized, it must already, it must already um, have to be uh, studied academically, as I just was uh, explaining before. Uh, I think that um, the book, my book, uh, Sephardi, is the result of a part of, you know, it's, it's a result of a part of my research. And um, 
I think that nowadays, as I've told you, nowadays uh, um, there is. It's like uh, the beginning of um, of um, of recognition of the existence of uh, Sephardic cuisine. But there is not just one Sephardic cuisine. There are many, many Sephardic cuisines because it depends on the diaspora. Of course, you've got, you've got a Sephardic cuisine from Morocco or from Spain, which is different from the Sephardic cuisine from Turkey and many other parts in the world, of course, because there are a lot of Sephardic diaspora. So um, that's it. I think that... Um, I think that um, what is important for me nowadays is uh, to be talking with uh, different people that in Israel, for example, are very interesting in the recognition and the existence and the sharing knowledge of the Sephardic cuisine. For example, um, I am I am talking with actually with two Israeli chefs, and I think we are going to work together on this um, recognition of Sephardic cuisine in Israel, like through a tour or uh, like um, the creation of a very special menu uh, in a very big hotel in Jerusalem because they are very interested. And I think that for me, it's, it's like, it's really, it's an honor, in fact, for me that to be able to, to share my research with other chefs and that there could be interesting in uh, understanding the Sephardic cuisine from from Spain mainly and from Morocco and wanted to share them this cuisine in Israel. It will make a significant contribution. It will <laughs> add, I mean, as, as, as diverse and creative as the Israeli culinary scene is, your contribution will be priceless to oh, it from I my perspective. So. I really hope so. I really hope so because I think it's time to open our minds and to start to start the recognition of other Jewish cuisine because there are a lot of Jewish cuisine and I think I hope that um, there was no recognition of Sephardic cuisine or not a lot of recognition of Sephardic cuisine in Israel and, and in other parts in the world because there was a lack of um, knowledge concerning um, the sources um, in relation with uh, the cuisine and the food of the Jews. But now that we have uh, evidence um, concerning the food of the Jews in Spain, mainly in Spain and other parts of the world that the Sephardic diaspora settled, I really, really hope that now we have that we can share um, the importance uh, of Sephardic cuisine in the world. Absolutely. <laughs> I was intrigued by what you mentioned in your cookbook regarding eggplant. Mm -hmm. Why was eggplant so repulsive to Christians in Spain, but so appealing to Jews and Muslims in Spain? Yeah, <laughs> this is an interesting question because in fact, when, for example, when I go um, to give a talk, uh, 
I always talk a little um, about eggplant and people are very curious about the relation that could have uh, existed between the Jews and the, the eggplant. And they are so curious how a vegetable could have a relation with religion and with culture and with Judaism. And um, so they are very curious. In fact, um, eggplants were repulsive to Christians um, because Jews used to eat a lot of eggplants. Eating eggplants was synonymous to be Jewish, you know? And, um, of course, it was synonymous to be Jewish or to a less extent to be Muslim because Muslims, um, there is a very important uh, shared culinary heritage between uh, the Jews and the Muslims of the Arabian Peninsula in the late Middle Ages. It is not the case with Christians. The Christians really uh, ate a different, different kind of food. This was not the case with the Jews and, and Muslims. The main difference between uh, Jews and between the Jews, the Jews and Muslim practices was uh, concerning the celebration of the holidays. And of course, the respect of the cash root from for the Jews, you know. But um, in fact, their eggplants were very repulsive to Christians because, as I told you, when uh, eating eggplants was uh, being Jewish. So, and it was very different from the Christians because um, the Christians uh, didn't like. Uh, eggplants. If you have a look in the all in all the um, through the I don't remember. I think it's eleven. Uh, I have been uh, I have been um, analyzing eleven cookbooks written in Spain since uh, fourteen ninety nine uh, onwards, and mainly in the Renaissance. Then, and you cannot find a cookbook that have uh, a lot of uh, eggplants. The main cookbooks written, uh, written under a Christian uh, domination do not contain eggplants. Sometimes there is n even no, no one recipe, no recipe of eggplants. And if you have a look to uh, the Kitab al-Tabir, for example, and the, and the other one too, there are a lot, a lot of eggplants and included a, a very special chapter uh, that concerned the eggplant dishes. So um, that in fact maybe um, we have to, to remind that uh, eggplant, eggplants have been cultivated in Spain at least since the 10th century and there were uh, in fact uh, there were several varieties of eggplants and under Al-Andalus, that means the territory of Spain under Muslim domination, there were more Jews and Muslims than Christians. But yes, oh yes. So this is something that maybe people um, uh, do not know, or I don't know. But of course, there were, there were a lot of Muslims and a lot of Jews, few Christians. So um, both Christians, both Jews and Muslims ate a lot, a lot of eggplants. And this very important conception of eggplants made Christian 
um, um, lost, in, in fact, at the Jews by associating them with eggplants. And we can find in, for example, in literature, uh, mainly, it was mainly in literature, in fact, uh, an association between eggplant and the Jews concerning um, the color of eggplants and the color of the skin of um, and the color of the skin of the Jews, or uh, you can, uh, or the skin, or not the skin, the eyes of the Jews, are an association between the flesh of the eggplants and the skin of the Jews. And the so in Christian literature, um, you can find a lot of evidences um, as uh, the eggplant used as a tool to love at the Jews. So that's, and, and, and then uh, this uh, was also, the eggplant was also used um, in Inquisition trials uh, to identify Jewish practices. The one who was eating casserole of eggplant, eggplant casseroles, was obviously a Jew. So it is a very special relation between the eggplants and the, and the Sephardic Jew. <laughs> That's so interesting. Um, I mean, I, I take eggplant for granted in light of how often I consume it. Um, I didn't necessarily attach eggplants to Jewish identity. Uh, and as someone who enjoys eggplant, it's hard to imagine how medieval Christian Spaniards would find it repulsive. Mm. But your response and the insight you provide um, clarify a very intriguing question of of culinary anthropology. Uh, yes, in fact, this is. Um, I think that when I started to to, in fact, it was. Uh, I didn't know that I was going to find so much evidences concerning the relation of the Jews and the eggplant. It's fine. I realized that when I have been um, researching uh, in uh, different kinds of uh, sources, of course, if you have a look only to one kind of source, I mean only in, in culinary sources or only in um, medical sources, you cannot understand this very special relation. In fact, you can understand the very special relation between the Jews and the eggplant and the repulsive um, and to understand why they were very repulsive to Christian Spaniards when you have a look to a lot of different kinds of sources and that's make the, the work uh, very complex and very hard because you cannot focus on one kind of source. You have to read everything and everything in different languages. And it is, that, that makes the, the, the work uh, very interesting, but very complex too. <laughs> wow. Wow, that, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> what assumptions about the history and culture and anthropology of Jewish food does your book challenge? Uh, that that's a, uh, another good question. Um, I think that my book um, intends to present 
the history and anthropology of Jewish food from sources. And this is for me the main point because um, we have all written many uh, cookbooks, uh, many Jewish cookbooks, okay? So this is, we can find a lot of cookbooks of Jewish cuisine, but my book is different because um, I really wanted to present the, the, the food and the cuisine of the Jews um, from mainly from Spain, but other countries too, from the sources, from historical sources. Nothing, as I used to say, nothing is invented. This is the real story. And I really wanted to, 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 to do this book from the historical sources. Um, then, um, of course, when you talk about Jewish cuisine, as I told before, um, there is no one, there is not only one Jewish cuisine, there are many Jewish cuisines, as there are um, Jewish diasporas. So, and it is um, almost, it is more important when you are talking about Sephardic cuisine, because as I told before, the cuisine, the Sephardic cuisine from Turkey is different, uh, not totally different, but it's different from the Sephardic cuisine from Spain and is different from the Sephardic cuisine from Morocco and is different from the Sephardic cuisine from Italy, for example. What is different from the Sephardic cuisine from Dominican Republic and, uh, and the Sephardic cuisine from Mexico? Um, but on the other side of the Atlantic, it, this is a very different um, situation, in fact. But if we, if we talk about the, the, the Sephardi diaspora in the Mediterranean basin, of course, there are as many Jewish Sephardi cuisine as there are different diasporas. And um, I think that... Uh, the main, the, the main problem when it comes to Jewish cuisine is that many, as I told, claims to know where the dish uh, comes from. And, and in fact, we, many people can say, okay, I know this dish and I know its origin because my grandmother or my grandmother used to do it. But after two generations, we do not have any uh, information concerning the, the, the origin of the dish. So before the, before the 20, 20th century, we do not have any information concerning the real origin of the dish. And that's why, and my, my book, Sephardi Cooking the History, wanted to highlight the, the history from the sources. So of course, now a family can say, okay, I prepare Almoronia, okay? I prepare Amaronia. I know that my, my, my mother and my grandmother and my grand-grandmother used to prepare Almaronia. But now I know that this dish, Almaronia, uh, comes from uh, Spain and it was prepared by, by, um, by conversos. And, but we can also find a recipe of, of Almaronia or 
the term Almerania is also mentioned in different kinds of sources. And this is very important. This is what I wanted to show and to highlight in my cookbook, the, the story from the sources. And in fact, now I just want, I just would like that people, when they are talking about their dish, they could say, okay, I know this dish, but I know where does it come from. And this is what I wanted <laughs> to know, in fact. Just, just yes, this is, this is very important for me. Wow, this is extremely, uh, extremely interesting. And I continue to be impressed by your erudition. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, in what ways did the dietary restrictions of kashrut or kosher dietary rules from Jewish religious traditions contribute to creativity in the Sephardi culinary world? Uh, in fact, if you have a look, if you have a look to, I'm I'm going to talk uh, about um, Inquisition trials because they are uh, judicial tree, uh, sources, so that's very important. Because what you have, what we have to understand is that in the 15th century, we could have seen that only Jews knew about kashrut, but it was but it was wrong, because of course if the if the Inquisition wanted to um, make denunciation concerning uh, Jewish practices, they themselves they have to knew to knew about the culinary practices and the kashrut practices. For example, one of the main um, well, in in many many trials of from Spain, you have a, a mention concerning uh, the the fact that. Um, uh, a man was uh, went to a Jewish uh, butcher and uh, uh, he bought um, meat and then he he went back home and the woman uh, decided to remove the nerve um, from the meat and it was so difficult and this made that the servant denunciated have den- have been denunciated and the the woman for uh, removing the nerve from the meat. And we have to keep in mind that even if the 15th century and before, kashrut practices have been respected by the converso, even if it was a very hard period for them because there was a persecution from the Inquisition. And then we, because we are talking about Inquisition, but uh, before Inquisition, I mean, because before uh, 1478 in Spain, uh, we know that a lot of persecution um, have been done concerning the Jewish communities. So, cash uh, food practices is in fact what um, is in fact like um, how can I say the the respect of cash food practices is um, is a um, is uh, a way to um, understand the the cuisine of the Sephardim nowadays. I mean that even if it was a very hard period in Spain, in Mexico, in Peru, and other countries, um, the Converso wanted 
to respect the casual practices and keeping their casual practices and making adaptation with other vegetables that depend of the country and the climate uh, where they were living makes um, created, in fact, uh, their own Sephardic cuisine. Right. That's why we have um, a Sephardic cuisine in Mexico and we have a Sephardic cuisine in Venezuela and we have a Sephardic cuisine in the um, Dominican Republic, for example, in Brazil too, because and the, and the, cash, the respect of the law of the cash route is like the string that, um, that, um, that makes what uh, is now with the, the culinary heritage of the Jews all over the world. Thank you for sharing that. that that's so insightful. And that, that really adds a lot to appreciating the anthropology <laughs> of Jewish culinary arts. What, can, what, what, what have you learned in the course of your research about who would cook the food in a Sephardic home during the medieval period, during the Renaissance, and during the Inquisition? Um, would it primarily be women who were cooking? Is there evidence of males who were cooking? And what can you share with us about the role of servants, if any, okay. in a Sephardi home? Yes, yes. Um, I I'm, doing, I'm going to talk about um, mainly from Spain, you know, so, okay. okay, because uh, the, the, the cooks, uh, the woman, the woman cooking and the woman as cooks uh, with their servants, um, um, their, their, this situation is very different uh, um, in Mexico, for example, and in Spain. So, uh, I'm more a specialist from Spain, so I'm, I prefer talking about uh, this situation in Spain. So, if we, if you have a look to the first cookbook written in Arabic in the, in the that dates back to the 13th century, um, it mentions a few people are mentioned in this cookbook, and we have few mentions of women that are cooking, but. It's very this this cookbook is very special because we can we do not know anything about the author. We just know that this author, if it was, uh, if it was um, Jewish, uh, we understand and so we understand why uh, he knows uh, very well the Jewish practices that are mentioned in several recipes. If this author was Muslim. We uh, understand that this Muslim author knew very well the Jewish practices and the Jewish cuisine in the 13th century. But in fact, there is not a lot. I think it's just three, three recipes mentioned uh, the presence uh, of a woman in the kitchen. But what is very interesting is when you have a look in other kinds of sources, that mentioned Jewish practices and our uh, Jewish uh, food, uh, for, for example, in banquets or in, like in the wedding or in literature or in, in Inquisition trials. In fact, when you have a look to all that different kinds of sources, 
also you realize that the cook were women. They were women that were cooking. And um, we also realized that they were women who were cooking because, for example, in Inquisition trials um, from Spain, the denunciations are made against women. Of course, there are denunciations against men, of course, but a lot, a lot of denunciations are uh, concerning women and they have been denunciated by by other women, so every the by servant, for example, that was not a Jewish woman, of course. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, everybody knows about um, Jewish practices, Jews and non-Jewish people, and that's why, and that's why we can find a lot of denunciation con- concerning culinary practices. And women denunciating uh, other women for their cooking, for their dishes, for their cooking practices. Uh, we can also find um, interesting evidences of this in a many in one Inquisition trial that say that um, a woman have been denunciated by his servant because she saw. Uh, he saw that she saw the woman going to a party um, with all the women, only women, and she was uh, she she brought with them with her um, a casserole of a pot of eggplant. So and she this woman has been associated by by the servant for this. So yes, I think that many of the cooks were women. <laughs> but nevertheless, there is a very interesting trail that mentioned that um, for a holiday, I think it was Shavuot, uh, a man has been cooking all the night. So this is just one, one, one evidence. Maybe there are others, but, uh, but I think that more, more of the cooks were women. <laughs> And this is also, and this is not surprising because um, in Judaism, um, the women takes have played a key role in transmission. So culinary practices are were very very important in transmission, and were part of of the very of the culture. So a woman has to um, to told her daughter how to prepare the dishes and how to put this kind of ingredients and not those kind of ingredients. And that's why the relation between the daughter and the mother and the importance of women in Judaism is so important and is so highlighted in Inquisition trials, for example. That's This is extremely fascinating. Uh, thanks for sharing uh, <laughs> such information with us from the depths of your expertise. I very much appreciate it. My pleasure. You mentioned in, in, on one of the pages in your book that how grateful you are to your husband and children for their patience, for having tasted 10 different dishes at times on the same day. <laughs> what role did your husband and children play in helping you get through this project? Uh-huh. In fact, as I told you at the beginning, 
at the interview, uh, we all belong to um, families uh, where we love uh, eating and we love cooking. Uh, then my my husband and my children uh, like cooking, of course. Uh, but I spend so many time in my kitchen and they do not have uh, the opportunity to cook by themselves. But sometimes I I told her, okay, so you can cook, you can cook tonight and, and I'm going just to, I'm going to wait for your dishes. <laughs> but in fact, um, I spend a lot of time cooking in my kitchen and writing um, but they like eating and they like cooking. They are very respectful. And that's why that at the end of um, my cookbook, I have uh, sometimes um, I have been preparing um, almost uh, 10 different dishes. So they couldn't <laughs> eat all, but, uh, but they have, they support me and they have been helping me and they still help me, help me um, at any time. So... I'm very grateful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and you mentioned your grandmother earlier on as being such an inspiration to you uh, in your journey in the culinary arts and an inspiration behind this cookbook. Um, how is there any? How does how does she perceive? this accomplishment of yours. Um, what are her thoughts on this cookbook uh, now that it's available and now that it's complete? Oh, she's very happy. Uh-huh. She's very happy because but she's, she's old. Eh? She's, she's 87. And, mm. uh, yes, she's 87. And she's one of the only members of her family uh, from her side. Uh, so um, she's very happy. She spent a lot of time uh, with uh, her um, with her friends and other women here in the street that are spending time in the street because here in Spain I'm talking I'm talking to you from Spain because my house is also here I live in the south of France but my family is from from Aspida side is in in the Strait of Gibraltar in the La Linea de la Concepcion so she has a lot of Women, friends, friends, women here. So she's very happy because uh, she sees a book, and uh, yes, she 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 knows that I speak. Um, I have uh, I mentioned her name in my book, and she's very proud. <laughs> Amazing! What a lady! Thank yeah. you for sharing this about her. Um, since. Since Rosh Hashanah is coming up, yeah. and a new cycle of Jewish holidays will be yeah. beginning fairly soon, mm-hmm. um, what can you share with us about the aesthetic symbolism of many of the dishes that appear in your book in relation to various Jewish holidays? For example, the hochuelos, yeah. um, in as 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 symbols of the Megillah. Mm. of Purim, or El Pan de los Siete Cielos, the bread of the seven heavens, Mm. um, symbolizing Mount Sinai in the context of Shavuot. Um, What can you share with us in regard to the aesthetic symbolism of dishes that come up in your book 
mm. in relation to specific Jewish holidays? I think I think that what uh, one of the reason why uh, Sephardic cuisine is so important and so delicious too, eh? but uh, so important and still living nowadays, it's thanks to the culinary practices we make for the different holidays. This mm-hmm. is why this is very for me. It is one of the main point, the main evidence. The main, the, the, this is the most important thing that allows us to understand why Sephardi cuisine continue to live nowadays. Thanks to the culinary practices we have in time to prepare ojuelas or in time to, pay, to prepare achala or, um, or in time to prepare uh, other kinds of the almoronia, for example. The and the culinary practices we have for holidays, and we have a lot of holidays in today. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why Sephardic cuisine continue to, to live uh, nowadays. And this is one of the reasons why the Sephardic cuisine is so rich. Because we have a lot of traditions. We have a lot of excellent, excellent dishes. And the Sephardic diaspora is so huge that we can find Everyone can find what he likes, in fact, in Sephardic cuisine, a cuisine from the Mediterranean basin, or increase in cuisine from, um, from uh, the other part of the world, like in Jamaica, like in Brazil, like in Argentina, like uh, in the Dominican Republic, like in Mexico. So for me, um, and the, this, is, this is my point of view concerning um, concern, my culinary point of view. Then um, the, um, I can um, I can uh, give you evidences of the importance of Jewish holidays. For example, if you'll have a look in Inquisition trials, m- the main accus- accusation you can you can find concern concerned the practices of the conversos in time of holidays. This man or this woman has been denunciated because for Pesach. Uh, uh, for the um, the well, yes, the, the term is in Spanish, but but for for Pesach for Passover, uh, this win this man has been uh, eating only unleavened bread. So we know he is Jewish and he is celebrating and continue Judaism uh, uh, because he do not eat uh, leavened bread, and in fact, Inquisition trials are full of evidences uh, concerning um, the celebration, the culinary, the culinary practices we have for holidays. Because, of course, it was um, more easy, it was easier for the Inquisition to denounce the converso because they knew that at this period of the year, the Jews used to have those practices. So they always keep an eye and there were always one, someone that, that could denounce him. So, of course, if you have a lot of holidays and more and even more, if this holiday, uh, uh, is, um, if, if this holiday is just, not just like Shabbat for one day, but if this holiday uh, is over seven days, 
this makes uh, easier um, for the Inquisition to denounce the converso because they have seven days when they can look at the converso practices, of course, so it was easier for them. So that's why the culinary practices for holidays like in my, that are very important in my cookbook for Shabbat, for Passover, for Rosh Hashanah, for Purim, that's very, very important because this is thanks to that that Sephardic cuisine continue to live nowadays. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, we are doing this interview uh, with you from Gibraltar. Um, being in Gibraltar as we speak, um, what can you teach us about Kalintita, the popular Gibraltarian dish, which is also featured in your cookbook? Yes. In fact, so as you told perfectly, um, I'm in the Strait of Gibraltar. So if you take a map or you have the rock of Gibraltar, and then on the other side of the border, you have the city, the Spanish city of La Linea de la Concepción, which is a Spanish city where I am living. But I'm just in front of the rock of Gibraltar. And wow. um, of course, um, as you told perfectly, um, in Gibraltar, where I, one of my um, best friends, Estrella Abudaran, uh, lived there. So uh, there is a dish which is a very, very special dish. And they have a festival in Gibraltar for this dish is called Calentita. Calentita, yes, you're right. It's in my cookbook because um, Calentita is, in fact, a very, very simple, easy dish made with uh, chickpea flour and salt and maybe someone, some adds eggs inside to be more smooth, in fact. And this Calentita dish is um, common in Gibraltar, but it is mainly consumed by Jews. And what is very interesting is that, um, of course, you can eat it for Passover, so you can make a link between this dish and the culinary uh, and the culinary practices and the liturgy. And the liturgy. And what is very interesting is that uh, the calentita bears another name when you go to Morocco and it bears the name of Shalawen and in Morocco if you go to for example in the in the quart in in the in the Medina I think in the old town of the city of Fes where everybody knows that there is and has been living a very very important Jewish community community here there you will find uh, people also men men that are uh, selling calentita or shalawen. And this calentita is the same as the calentita of Gibraltar. And this is a very uh, Moroccan, Jew, Moroccan Jewish uh, dish, in fact. But this is normal because in Gibraltar, there is a very important uh, Moroccan Jewish community. Other communities also, but there is an important Jew Moroccan Jewish community. I've learned so much from you during the course of this interview, and I have no doubt that our listeners are as well. 
as we bring this interview to a close, what are you working on now, next, as your subsequent project, having completed this masterpiece that you've already gotten behind you? What What's next for you in terms of research I'm... projects? Research project. Um, I am working on another cookbook, like Stephardi Cooking the History, but will perhaps may which is which will maybe uh, more thematic. In fact, so I don't want to say more about that. But I think that uh, I hope very soon for for. I don't know exactly, but I'm still working on that because I have to to go deeper in other kinds of sources. But the the book, uh, the my next book after Sephardi, uh, will be yes, a thematic books based on historical sources like like Sephardi cooking the history, but more thematic, and uh, I hope it will be. I hope I will finish this as soon as possible. <laughs> but I have also a lot of work to do before before um, completing this and uh, this book. But um, I also hope to be able to introduce photos of the sources next to the recipes and the history of the dishes as I did for uh, Sephardi cooking the history. But uh, yes, the other one. I hope the other one is. Will will be as uh, successful as uh, as Sephardi cooking the history. So yes, I have I have work to do before I completed this the new one. But uh, yes, I'm working on a new one. And then um, another project is that uh, I am talking with um, a very 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 famous Israeli chef. And um, we are working on the project for for next year uh, in Israel. I hope so. And because there is a very important there is a very important demand uh, concerning the recognition of Sephardic cuisine in Israel. So I'm working with I'm talking with this famous Israeli chef to promote uh, Sephardic cuisine in Israel. But I am also working uh, with another chef in a famous, uh, in a famous um, restaurant in Jerusalem. And we are, we are, we are talking about uh, a project concerning um, a very special menu uh, for a very special Sephardic menu with um, and we are going I hope to organize um, like uh, an event concerning the Sephardic cuisine there in Jerusalem so we are still work- talking about that but my goal in fact is to make Sephardic uh, Jewish cuisine known and recognized by, by everyone and for its richness for its history for its unique history and this is uh, this is what I want, and that's why uh, I, I love Sephardic cuisine, and I and I love that. <laughs> Amazing! It's so important, and it's it's such a contribution to Israel. I hope so. And to I really so. the international <laughs> Jewish community. Um, uh, there are no words to express how much of a gap you're filling by doing this work. 
on behalf of all of us. Mm, I really hope. I, I know that. Um, I hope. I know that that in Israel there is, as I told you, in Israel there is. It's like the beginning of people are very interesting in Sephardic cuisine, and I receive demand of. Um, they ask me questions concerning uh, concerning Sephardic cuisine, and they want to work with me. And uh, I w- I want to tell that um, everyone. Everyone who is interesting, they could be chefs, they could be scholars, they could be universities, they could be everyone who is interesting in working on Sephardic cuisine and the cuisine of the Jews and the cuisine of the Sephardim. Of course, I will be very glad to to contribute to this project because I am uh, because the the Jewish history and the Sephardic history and the Sephardic cuisine. Uh, um, needs to be highlighted and highlighted and recognized because it is so rich and so important and it has a very singular, a very particular, a very unique history that needs to be recognized by her- by everyone, in fact. And I'm here to contribute to this. Absolutely. Um, you couldn't have said it better. It's it's so important. Thank you so much for thank you so much for thank this interview you, from the bottom of my heart. Uh, thank you for the work that you're doing and Thank you for giving all of us the gift of this amazing cookbook to any of our listeners who are interested. Um, this would be an amazing Rosh Hashanah gift. Uh, this would be an amazing gift. As <laughs> holidays beginning the new Jewish year uh, begin. That's right. And to uh, anybody who's interested in the subject matter on an academic, conceptual, theoretical level, uh, Helen's book, is an excellent introduction to Jewish history from an angle that fills a significant intellectual gap. Helen, thank you for your time today. Shabbat shalom. My pleasure. You're welcome. Shabbat shalom.